In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. You have a wormhole in your body. <laughs> Men do anyway. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. You see, the universe is teeming with lies, and they all watch Dancing with the Stars. Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Ladies and germs, ladies and germs, Paratopians everywhere, we have a very special guest tonight. Oh, Jeff and I have always wanted to get a physicist on. Well, how about an astrophysicist, hmm? Our guest tonight is Dr. Rudy Shield, who is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which is the world's largest astronomy organization, combining forces of Harvard University and the Smithsonian Astrophysics Observatory. I met him at the same Harvard gathering where I met uh, Susan Kornacki, and he gave a jaw-dropping presentation on black holes and how leaving Earth's orbit affects astronaut consciousness and then extrapolates from there what's actually what's actually taking place in the brain. Um, hope we can get to all of this tonight and so much more here to answer all of our paranormal questions and normal questions. Dr. Rudy Shield. Peritopia, please welcome our very special guest, Dr. Rudy Shield. Uh, Dr. Shield, I'm in a very fortunate position with you because we, uh, in setting this interview up, spoke and, and you said to me, I can ask you and Jeff can ask you uh, anything we want. <laughs> and, that, and that leaves a lot open on a paranormal show. So I, I guess that's why right. I... So I guess that's right. I guess I would call that uh, your call. <laughs> uh, so I guess sort of the big overarching question is what in this mish- mismatch of paranormal stuff from, I don't know, where you want to even take it from, ghosts, UFOs, uh, astrology, any of the sort of esoteric paranormal things, is, is there any way to prove them out in physics? Um. I would think that the word prove them out is just a little bit strong, but what's really got me excited, and I think much of the world excited, is the fact that today in physics we have some new properties of the universe that we're very excited about that are now understood from astronomical observations. And so this means that we have a new toy, a new wrinkle, and we're hoping and we're starting to appreciate how this new tool will allow us to explain so many many of the various phenomena what, that many people have discussed and science has always thrown its arms up about. In other words, 
Um, how many people are comfortable talking about the science of astrology? Well, guess what, folks? There is a science of astrology. Astrology works for a reason that we can now understand. In the same way, we can now understand what telepathy is. Telepathy being the joining of two minds so that with no words exchanged, people can know the same thought. Well, that's remarkable, and it's now understood how that works to some extent. So um, I'm really excited about this development, but there's another development um, that we'll talk about before the hour is over. That's the development of the understanding of black holes. We have something called dark energy, which is now indicated and known to exist from supernova observations. And perhaps many of your audience would have heard about this, reading about it in Scientific American magazine. And there you would have read that observations with large telescopes of distant supernovas seem to show the existence of a field in the universe, sometimes called quintessence or sometimes called dark energy, sometimes called Einstein's greatest blunder, it's called many things. But this field now seems to be causing a recent re-expansion of the universe. And so I think most commonly it's called dark energy, and we'll call it that. When you, so say, that's recent, one, when you say recent expansion, how recent? Uh, so we're talking about the last one-third of the age of the universe. And so I'll, I'll explain that just a little bit better. Okay. What we're starting to see from these observations of very distant objects called supernovas is that after the universe expanded, we had already, we had always imagined that it slows down because it's now on coast and the mutual self-gravity of everything in the universe ought to be slowing it down and maybe would even make it stop one day. But the actual observations astonished everybody and were not believable even to the observers at the time. They showed that after the, after the universe reached about two-thirds of its present age, the expansion event seems to have started up again, and today we're in a mode where the universe is expanding ever more rapidly. And so in time, we're expecting the universe to expand faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, even faster than I can talk. <laughs> and so um, we now know that we have to reckon with the properties of this aspect of the universe. It's probably some kind of field, sometimes called a scalar field, and it seems to have properties that are very much like the old ether that was inferred to exist about 100 years ago. Hmm. So that's one aspect of the universe that we're excited about. And then the other is equally important for all the phenomena um, that your listeners might like to talk about that involve time. For example, how is it that sometimes people experience ghosts of, of uh, human beings that died some years ago? Or how do people experience past lives or have memory of past lives? And even how is it that some people have precognition or can get some inklings or some gleanings of the future? How is future time manifest in the universe that people can actually tune into it? Those are all mysteries that we now seem become resolved by understanding the properties of black holes. So that's what I do. I study black holes. And um, for the last 15 years, I've been studying one particular object that happens to be gravitationally lensed, meaning that about halfway distance to this distant quasar, 
um, there is a large galaxy along the flight path. And in fact, the quasar is exactly behind this lens galaxy. And because of that, light can be bent by the gravitational field of the intermediate or lens galaxy. And so when I look to this distant object, I can see where there's a light path to the north of the lens or to the south of the lens. And so I see two images of the same object. Isn't that remarkable? Uh. But not only do I see the two images, I see them at different times. So now what does that mean? It means that the universe is able to be played before me, before my eyes, at different times in this particular direction. And so that's a phenomenon of gravitational lensing, and I have been able to show by observing the brightness fluctuations of the distant quasar source that, in fact, the one image reaches us 1.1 years before the other image arrives. Isn't that amazing? So that if you could imagine that I was watching maybe a soap opera on a TV program, and remember, what I'm seeing is changes in the brightness fluctuations or changes in the brightness output of a very distant object called a quasar. That's a black hole surrounded by a very large um, disk of galaxy. Mm -hmm. And I'm observing those fluctuations at two different times at the same time. Now, brightness fluctuations are what we see in the local TV tower, right? In other words, when I'm watching a TV program, I'm seeing some um, um, TV transmitter do brightness oscillations. They have to be brightness at uh, radio frequencies, and my TV screen knows how to interpret those fluctuations as the scan lines on the TV, and in the end, it returns a picture to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally saying to you that what I'm seeing with this distant quasar is the events of the universe played twice. So suppose, for example, I was watching you know, General Hospital on this TV program. And why wouldn't you be? Right. <laughs> I'm an astrophysicist. That's what I do all day. <laughs> and um, so what I'm saying is that we could be uh, following the storyline and hear that, oh, one of the characters... Uh, announce that they've got they become pregnant well that's very interesting what it means that if i'm i'm listening to that on the b channel the later arriving channel i can literally switch my antenna to the a channel and see the same events played in the future in other words i can find out what came of the pregnancy was it a boy was it a girl did she marry the guy what about the wicked stepmother and so on? Having satisfied my curiosity that, oh, it turns out to be a boy and she doesn't marry the guy, okay, I can go back to the B channel and watch the whole drama of the pregnancy and what about his drug problems and blah, blah, blah. So can you see very explicitly with this example, I literally see events in the universe at different times. Mm-hmm. Now, that's one property of of the black hole and the intervening um, mass um, of the galaxy that's along the line of sight. And when was this but we're discovered? Discovering, uh, this was discovered in 1986, actually, when I first announced this value of the time delay and the fact that we see the same image at two different times. The gravitational lens had been discovered seven years before by a British astronomer who was using a radio telescope. 
So um, there's one additional property that's very interesting in this discussion, and that is um, the black holes themselves do seem to have this property. And by this I mean that my studies about the, um, the structure of the object of the mass condensations that surround the black hole shows that they're arrayed around the black hole as though there's a very strong magnetic field coming to the black hole and anchored to it. This was not uh, anticipated by standard theory, and so what we're talking about is that the object there is not the technical black hole that everybody had expected to find, but now that we're actually making observations and can see exactly what's there, with my techniques of uh, microlensing and like that, um, what we're learning is that we're seeing an object so dominated by its magnetic field that it must have a structure in which basically events of the past and the present are simultaneously present in this object. In other words, we see it at different times. Now, that's rather interesting, and it's related to what I said at the, at the earlier part, namely that the gravitational event also allows us to see the universe played at different times. And I hope that um, your listeners can appreciate from these examples that, wow, these guys from astronomical observations are really tuning into some new attributes of the universe. This could get interesting. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a, a, how they couldn't. Yeah, right. Well, try me out. And so, for example, uh, what example would you like to hear something about? Do you want to hear about ghosts or telepathy or remote viewing or what should we talk about? Wow. Well, um, you know, I know Ghost. you. Ghosts? Oh, okay. Well, let's go, forget about it then. Let's go with ghosts. <laughs> All right. Let's go to ghosts. Now, one thing that we're learning about the universe is that the information about our life propagates through the universe at speeds much faster than the speed of light, which remember we always call C, the speed of light. And the standard textbook story that every kid knows in America is that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And that still is true if you make that be not nothing but no particle. And remember that the idea comes from the Einstein theory of relativity, and it was stated by Einstein that no particle can go faster than the speed of light. But what if information without particles can go faster than the speed of light? Because apparently it does. Now, information separate from particles is a little bit different. Remember that particles are usually what we use to transmit airmail letters or information of any kind sent as shipping. And if we want to do it faster, we always boost up to light speed by sending a laser pulse or a radio signal or something. But now apparently this dark energy field can do something that's more miraculous, and that is it can transmit information faster than the speed of light, and it does this with something that's called quantum holograms. Your viewers probably don't know about quantum holograms, but they are the irreducible bits of knowledge from which all larger pieces of knowledge, like a work by Shakespeare, uh, are constructed. And these elementary particle bits, again called quantum holograms, can be transmitted by the mind at speeds faster than the speed of light. And so it is that property 
their faster propagation combined with the property of black holes storing all of this information that allows information of past lives to actually still be present in the universe if you can interrogate the black holes at faster than the speed of light. And that's what the mind does. The mind has the possibility to interact with the dark energy field and communicate with these other layers, these onion skin layers of past times of the black hole, and thereby reconstruct or be sensitive to the information about a departed soul. So that even after a person dies, that wormhole connection that was their connection to their consciousness does not die instantaneously, but apparently leaves some residual in our space-time and some sensitive individuals, not including myself, seem to be able to pick up on or to receive that communication and have the kind of semi-transparent visage or image or picture of that person and sometimes even get information from that person, information of the character of, well, I'm comfortable, or I'm home now, or I'm okay. So that's what ghosts are. They're not made up. They're not fictional in general, but in fact are probably real manifestations of processes working in the universe. So how is it possible that um, they can seem to respond to you? Um, it's because apparently, and, you know, I don't really know that much about ghosts, and I didn't really know that they can respond to you, so this is the first time that I'm hearing about this. Um, if that's true, it must mean that um, the spirit of the deceased person is also present in the universe, even though the person's principal spirit has long been gone, that wormhole connection probably can be reproduced by the universe in the sense of being two at the same place at two different times. These, these properties seem to persist in the universe. In the whole methodology of ghost hunting, they have what they call electronic voice phenomena. And in a couple of instances that I personally heard, there have been two investigators that would just say go into a room. And I'm, I'm going to use probably an example that everybody out there knows, which is from the show Ghost Hunters, which a lot of people are losing faith in. But nonetheless, this was one of their earlier uh, investigations. They walked into a hotel that a princess from a European country had died in. When they walked in the room with their recorders running, they said, Princess, are you here? Later on, they said, if you are here, you need to let us know that you're here. They heard absolutely nothing. When they got back and they analyzed the recorders that they had brought with them, you can clearly hear this woman in a European accent say, well, of course I'm here. Where are you? This immediately kind of spoke to me. I, I mean, arguably one of the better EVPs that I've ever heard. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, are we in some cases, effectually talking through time and to the person that we think or we would call a ghost or a spirit, are we actually talking to someone in another time who then perceives us as the ghosts? Um, 
Uh, without my knowing any more details and based simply on what you're saying, I believe the answer is yes. And so let me clarify that a little bit. Um, in this case, probably um, there has been some kind of masking going on, and it's true that in our universe, um, things can be canceled out or masked relatively easy by people who know how to do this. And so, for example, we have many examples of where people who say that they have um, ET experience and um, have seen ETs often say that they mask themselves. So what, when I was a little boy, I saw them as little bunny rabbits or as kindly spirits. And it's very likely that in those cases, the information about the ET was changed by the ET in a kind of hypnotic way, in such a way as to cause the human being to see uh, the alien entity as a bunny rabbit. And uh, they can do apparently much more of that kind uh, to mask themselves. And so I suspect that if they can mask the image, they can also mask the sound. But I don't know whether, for example, the sound was there and was picked up by the microphone at the time, and the person who was in the room just didn't hear it because something about the space or the intent of the ghost wanted the person to not hear it, but later wanted it to be heard on the tape, and it's even conceivable that some entity screwed up the tape. Right. Things of yeah. this kind have, have also been reported because it's been reported that, you know, the, um, the missile shields, uh, the uh, nuclear missile shields have been interfered with by ETs who want the missiles not to work. So things of that kind have been reported. I know a case who reported to me that um, a recording that was being made was uh, believed to have picked up the image of a uh, of a uh, alien who was present and was being recorded but when um, the researchers tried to pick out the recording they found a tremendous burn mark through the recording equipment i saw a picture of the equipment and uh, no et was recorded for therefore so apparently they are very tricksters there are tricksters in the universe hmm. Well, here's the other, and, and as long as we're on the alien thing, let me jump to this. Um, and this is someone I've always wanted to ask, something I've always wanted to ask to, of someone like you. I've noticed more or less over the years, and, and actually gotten this uh, confirmed from several, in fact, several of our guests have even remarked about this part of the phenomena. Uh, when it, it, it seems like in, in all the years past when I've had some sort of either sighting or contact experience, whatever you want to call it. This has been during times where I have paid particular attention or devoted a lot of time to actively, in a way, seeking out uh, such a thing to happen. Uh, You're just going through a phase. Uh, well, <laughs> I, wish, I wish that were the whole thing. I mean, I wonder... I've wondered at times that based on the amount of devotion or the amount of attention that someone pays to a particular phenomenon, uh, and then that person then has that phenomenon manifest not only for themselves but for other witnesses in the same, you know, in, in the same uh, presence of. Do you feel that has any basis in any sort of 
physics that you could mesh some ideas together and tell me how that works, how that would work, just by the simple focus of intent that you are manifesting something that's clearly external uh, and yet nonetheless material or external enough to be perceived by other people around you? Yes, I think that's one of the easiest things to understand, and it's, in fact, probably very closely related to remote viewing. And I presume all your uh, audience would know what we mean by remote viewing. It means that some people are able to um, 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 to picture events in a distant location, um, but usually in the case of the remote viewing experience, what happens is that it's more like telepathy, where the remote viewer, um, now that would be you, Jeff, mm-hmm. um, is now able to telepathically communicate with a person in that remote site. So let's say that you're a CIA person trained to do remote viewing, and you want to look into Osama bin Laden's cave and you want the CIA to develop a description of everything that's in the cave, perhaps to, in fact, reveal something about where the cave is. And in that case, what apparently happens is that the remote viewer, you, um, try to telepathically communicate with another sentient being or person who is in the cave. And therefore, you telepathically communicate through that person's eyes and consciousness, and you literally tune into what that sentient being or that remote viewer sees. Mm. So um, that's the way it would work in the case of remote viewing. Now, it's also true that aliens are able to very finely attune to our consciousness. And it's very likely that when they want to bring a spaceship into our space-time, that's a rather difficult undertaking, and they find it easiest to do that by riding on your wave of consciousness. In other words, they take your wave as being something that's there in space, and thereby they're able to ride on that wave and appear to be seen by you and others around you also because your consciousness is there and you are the thing that guides in the ship. And you probably know that so many people seem to see UFOs all the time, and we call that suspicious because many of us, myself included, I have never seen a UFO, many of us are jealous. We never see ships. So why should that be? Obviously, it's because you guys, with all your damn flying saucers, are crazy, right? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't this answer the question, in a sense, of why is it some people always see flying saucers and most of us do not? Well, you probably have something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd go along with that. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, what, what I would like to hear um, is uh, during the Harvard uh, thing, you, you had talked about what Edgar Mitchell told you about sort of adopting the consciousness of an elephant looking for a watering hole. Um, yes. Yeah, that whole... Uh, enough said. I, let, me, let me talk about that because it's very close, and I mean, it's appropriate you should bring that up now because um, we were talking about things that are closely related to it, um, the fact that um, 
we do have a consciousness. It's some kind of a connection to the rest of the universe. That's what our consciousness is. And um, the way it works in the universe is that um, our mind is brought to the earth as kind of a wormhole connection. And when we are conscious, that means that we're constantly comparing our body inputs of sight and sound and touch and smell. We're comparing that with things that have happened to us before, and those are stored in the wormhole of our consciousness. And the act of consciousness is a continuous and rhythmical um, reference of a new experience to our old habits of experience and our old learned knowledge, uh, which is in this, which is stored in this wormhole, and so that's what the character of consciousness is. Now, um, what I'd like to tell your radio audience then is that um, astronaut Edgar Mitchell has told me something that is not widely known uh, outside of the astronaut corps. And it is it's kind of a funny problem that the astronauts occasionally have and have reported. And Edgar Mitchell told me about this personally. So it's first-hand information to me and second-hand information to your radio audience. Great. What he said is that the following, that very often, astronauts working in the very confusing environment of um, a space capsule lose their reference to space and time and up and down because the confusion of their situation. What we on Earth's surface know is that there's a sunrise and a sunset every 24 hours, but in orbital space, there's a sunrise and a sunset in every 90 minutes. And also, we here on Earth have no question ever about what's down and what's up. The Earth's gravitational field defines that perfectly for us all the time. Whereas for an astronaut, you're weightless. And so there is no up or down all the time. Things are tumbling topsy-turvy. And because of this, your mind easily slips out of its fundamental reference system and becomes, and becomes confused. And in that vulnerable state, it is sometimes found by astronauts that they lose or break off this conscious connection to their soul entity, to that eternal being that's born with them. And when they do that, they too easily slip into the consciousness of some other sentient being, even so far as slipping into the consciousness of an elephant looking for its watering hole. Now, the elephant is a rather extreme example. It's more likely that you would slip into the consciousness of another human being, but nonetheless, all of those things are possible because the minds of all sentient creatures work profoundly and fundamentally about the same. Uh, it's just that the frequency patterns are a little bit different, but it's not too hard if you slip out of your wormhole connection to slip into another one, and it could be an animal. And as a rather extreme case, Edgar Mitchell told me about the elephant looking for his watering hole. Hmm. Well, Isn't that fascinating? That is fascinating. And how different is that from, say, uh, meditation where the object is to get rid of your answers and to be in a state of questioning, uh, and then that sort of dissolves the self because the self is built upon answers? Uh, would that be the yeah. same thing in, in function? Um, I think it's related, and I don't, well, let's, I don't want to nitpick about the same thing or related, so let's just say... 
I don't know enough about meditation to really say this very accurately or authoritatively. However, it is probably a very similar thing where what you're trying to do, I suppose, from my own experiences with meditation is just clean the slate of your mind. In other words, basically soften or lose that connection so that you can just have your mind in a free state in which it doesn't do the self the self referencing which is your consciousness but rather is just left loose to fly around and pick up whatever influences come in mm-hmm. does that sound right does that sound like what your mind does in such a state uh yeah i think so or could you actually say it better, Jeremy? Can you say better what happens when you're meditating? And uh, can you maybe I can comment on that if you would like to take a shot at what exactly is going through your mind? Uh, well, nothing, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, I think the purest sort of definition I can give to meditation is uh, getting to a state where the brain sees that projecting the self as a seeker isn't going to find... Uh, this quote-unquote enlightenment that it can't. And so it stops projecting the self. And in that moment of not projecting, you know, silence, quietness, whatever word you want to use, becomes the case of the brain. Yeah. And then and then from there, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. <laughs> all right. So very good. So let me then say that, if I might, in with my own words uh, that uh, will then tie it into what I was saying earlier about the function of the brain and also the function of the universe. So... I think that we basically and profoundly agree that what you're trying to do is to break off or interrupt that connection where your brain's right lobe compares any new information to your whole past history of information of of that kind, and you stop making judgments about it. And that's what the brain is doing in conscious activity. It's making constant judgments about the inputs that come in from left brain. Well, I would take it a step further and say that that not only is the right brain not making judgments and not trying to compare, but that the left brain is not trying to pull anything in of its own accord for the right brain to judge. So that anything could leak in. Yeah. And, and, and you, you think that's dangerous, but then it's not. There's some sort of, you know, people call it kundalini or universal energy. Whatever that is, is actually the thing that enters you or becomes apparent in you. So, terrific. And I think I agree with all that you say, that uh, in uh, in this clean slate mode or this, this kind of open left brain mode, um, you allow things to enter you in the hope that, good things will come your way and that they will leave you in an elevated state because of their goodness. Some people seem to not have consistently good experience with this, um, and I don't know why that would be. Uh, we're all different, and we all come to here to to this life for different purposes, presumably. And so it might be that that is some lesson that's uh, the focus of their lives. And so I suspect that these things will influence or happen to people differently for different souls. And so I think we're saying about the same thing, that we deliberately put our brains in a state of reduced self-referencing or judgments, allow things to come into the mind. They appear as quantum holograms or feelings and information, and we simply let them float around interact with our brains however they would like to, 
and then leave our brains open for the next to come along and just see if that's fun. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. And then and then I think that there's, well, I know that there's another level, and I, I told you, I don't know if you remember this at the, the Harvard meeting, but about this, uh, there's that energy that I've experienced, and then also this sort of slit that opens up at the base of the spine, and I've felt this three times, and the third time, uh, this bliss energy washes in, and then my awareness sort of washed out, and then I sort of had the big I am experience of going from nothingness into uh, what I can only call is feeling consciousness, feeling that nothingness become conscious of itself, and in that moment, um, expanding, and then snapping, and then there's a spark, and then the big bang, uh, and you see, you know, the universe, and you identify with each little part, and every big part, and it's it's a confusing mess of perspectives that all happen at once. Uh, that is yeah. amazing and all that. And, and I guess what I wanted to ask you from that is when we talk about speeds faster than light, could it not be the case that, I mean, the way I would put it is there's a speed faster than light, which is the speed of relationship, because the speed of relationship is instantaneous because, in fact, from that perspective, everything is always happening now. From the perspective of God, if you want to call it that, the point of view of this nothing, this formless intelligence, uh, everything is emanating in and as that form, formless intelligence, as form. And so when you click into that perspective, everything is instantaneous. There's no time. There's no separation. Does that make Excellent. sense? Excellent. So much so that I would like to break it down a little bit and talk about little bits of it one at a time, if that's all right. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. Now, first, I'd like to talk to you about the uh, the basic experience that you have, and you mentioned some of its properties. And I want to ask you just first: Would you say that it's also an ecstatic experience? You feel very good in this in this state. Um, part partly, yeah. I mean, the thing is that partly, the, okay. Yeah. So, I excuse say, me. In, in um, that so state, I want... there's multiple perspectives going on. One of those perspectives was me scared that I was dying. <laughs> so on the one hand, I am spirit becoming and inhabiting all of my creation. And on the other hand, I'm Jeremy lying in bed going, oh my God, I'm dying. All right. So that then I think is not under the, what you would call the syndrome of what's called the Samadhi experience, what the Indian mystics call the Samadhi experience. That's more of an ecstatic experience. Do you understand the distinction? And am I, am I analyzing you correctly? Uh, I think so. Yeah. You, you've heard, heard of the, Samadhi heard and, before. Yeah. But you okay? But you're not familiar with it. You don't know that uh, that you've had that experience, and um, so um, uh, from what you say, I'm inferring that this would not be what the Indian mystics would call samadhi, and so it's something else. But it has been described by other people. I presume. Would you say that uh, other people have described the same experience? Um, I would say I haven't read enough to know, but it seems that what these quote-unquote enlightened people do is talk around the experience and then don't actually tell you what the experience is. Oh, I see. Uh, and I think I know what you mean by that because I agree. I, I myself have often had the feeling that people describing their meditative experiences do kind of do that. They kind of talk around it but don't really tell you just exactly what the experience was or what they were doing when the experience first occurred to them. So I think I understand what you mean there. Right. Now, um, let me then get back into the element of the experience itself, and I'm not sure um, 
that I can describe too much of it. Of course, you talked about starting out by being scared of dying. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's perfectly understandable, um, and I don't really know how to understand that. I'm not a professional shrink here, <laughs> but um, maybe you can tell me then what happened after that, if we can step our way through it. Uh, after I felt like I was not, well, the first thing that happened is I feel this slit open up. I see light. I don't open my eyes. I don't move because I don't want to It feels surgical in a way, and I don't want to mess anything up. Uh, whatever's going on. So I just lie there and I feel like I'm seeing light from outside, but maybe it was from inside. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, um, this bliss energy, that's all I can describe it as, sort of enters and from head to toe, my entire backside feels like it's beating with this this energy, which feels really good. Uh, And then that energy sort of washes out the slit and my sort of awareness goes with it, for lack of a better term. Uh, And then there's nothingness which is not describable. It's just there's, a, you know, maybe a comatose state for however long that lasts, and suddenly that state becomes aware of itself. And in that moment of that state becoming aware of itself, I am aware. I am aware of myself as it. I have a visual of it, and I'm aware of myself in bed going through this. Like, both of those are happening at the same time. And when nothingness becomes aware of itself, it's almost as if a drop of water is expanding over blackness. That's the visual that I'm seeing, and the thing that I'm feeling is the elasticity of it in my head, and it feels like something's going to snap, and I'm going to die. Like that, I can feel this in my brain, and I feel like I'm having an aneurysm or something. Um, and indeed, this water or whatever does snap, but I don't die. Instead, there's a, a little spark, and from that spark, the entire you know universe, multiverse, whatever you want to call it, sort of jettisons out from that spark. And now I'm aware of myself in bed still, but I'm also going through the motions of I'm aware of myself as those, you know, rocks going through space and as the solar wind and all of this. And it's sort of all of this I am identification um, going through all of this. And the only thing that was um, different in quality was when I became or adopted the perspective of a star or a sun, which felt like it had its own, almost its own consciousness to it. Like, I don't know if this is ever going to be borne out in science, but it felt like stars are alive. And uh, it felt like it, you know, was aware of all the stars around it, but it had this immense aloneness to it. And it was just happy to be giving life to the nearest rock that could take it. Uh, I don't even know how else to describe it. So I went through all of this and eventually, um, and as I'm going through this, like I said, that whole part of it was blissful and great and ecstatic, like you're saying. But I was also still aware of like, oh, my God, I'm dying. What is this? Um, so eventually my consciousness or whatever, my perspective settles on this red planet and I hear this female voice that I've heard during alien abduction experiences say, do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves? Uh, which is such a trite contracty message that it was laughable. And I thought in that moment, I thought, okay, I get this. I'm dying and I'm trying to attach something that I understand to this giant, broad, deep experience, which is alien abductions. And so my unconscious mind is conjuring that voice. I've got to get out of this. At the same time, I've got this other part of me just repeating over and over, Lizette Larkin's talking to extraterrestrials. Lizette Larkin's talking to extraterrestrials. Um, So I went to bed with a headache. I concentrated on the headache. And when I concentrated on the headache, I sort of pulled my awareness back 
into me, and I could actually see, like, my bones and my blood as my sort of awareness came back into my body and back up into my own brain. It was completely weird, and I felt that, you know, slit close up, and then I jumped out of bed, and I just started pacing around like an animal, like, what just happened, you know? So cut to a couple of months later, I got a call from the Learning Annex in New York um, asking if I could teach this class called Talking to Extraterrestrials. Lizette something or rather used to teach it. I'm like, Lizette Larkin by any chance? And they're like, yeah. So I told them the story, and they, they thought I was crazy, uh, probably. <laughs> but I told it to them anyway. And uh, so I decided I would get a hold of Lizette Larkins. It turns out she had written a book called Talking to Extraterrestrials. And um, I got her email, and I emailed her and asked her, since this female voice said, do we humans not understand, uh, not do you humans, you know, maybe she's that voice. Um, so I emailed her this very babble, and um, she emailed back saying she has no recollection of it, but she wouldn't be surprised, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was almost as if I had this giant sort of, if you'll pardon this, brain fart, psychic brain fart, at the end of this experience, so that when I came out of it, I would have outside validation that that I wasn't going nuts, that it actually did happen, if that makes Very sense. Very interesting, isn't that? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot in that to talk about. Um, as you were talking, I was taking a few notes. And so um, I'd like to um, step you through that experience a little bit and talk over with you the kinds of things that you told me about. Sure. Uh, have you done this before? No. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's see let's see where this goes. So, um, in the first place, um, you recall that you were in bed and you had the experience of being uh, scared of dying. Um, after you dealt with that, you felt a little slit open uh, on the back of your neck. And very unexpectedly, even though your eyes were closed, you said that you saw a light. Um, Can you tell me? Wait, i got to back up there. I actually, I went to bed um, with a headache, but I, I didn't think I was dying. I thought I was dying when the slit opened up and the experience started. Oh, okay. That's when the, the fear came. All right. So, um, so, with that correction, I'd like to ask you then now to focus back on this time you say you saw the light. You could see a light. Um, was that a point of light, or was that an all-enveloping light all around you? Could you tell me what color it was? Uh, yeah, what it was do you remember? It was all-enveloping, and it was white. It was just like somebody was shining a flashlight outside my eyes. Um, and I've had yes, this before. I've had this since then. And, you know, if I open my eyes, there's nothing there, you know? Uh, so I'm assuming there's some internal thing that's going on. Yeah. Well, other people rec um, do record experiences of going to the light or seeing the light. And I'm not entirely sure about this, but I, and so I can't tell if seeing the light is a kind of way of saying that um, I'm in touch with the existence of a whole other part of the universe, which, however, I don't see the way I normally see things, but rather I see this with conscious activity, not through my visual sensors. Mm -hmm. Many other people have a big issue about going to the light and seeing the light. Um, many times in their lives, this is especially true of people who are abductees, 
and have witnessed uh, uh, and had many experiences of these uh, abduction phenomena, many of those people do talk about being drawn to the light, and this is often the drawing to the light is often a part of a larger experience, just as you describe it. Because you told me that after you saw the light, the enveloping light, that you experienced a blissful energy. Right. Uh, and then, then um, can you tell me more about that? When you saw the, or when you experienced a blissful energy, I think I have a sense of what that would be, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit. What do you mean? Uh, the, was, the, was the energy of seeing uh, old friends or the energy of... Um, it, was, it was very physical. It was, there's, a, it, again, it feels like a slit or a gill or something opens up at the, Really, at the tail of the spine, not the neck, at the uh, at the base of the spine, opens up, and then this. I felt it only two other times outside of this, and it feels like almost like you're levitating on this bed of energy. I don't know how to, how to describe it other than to say it's it physically feels great. It just feels like I don't know, like every good nerve in you is being tickled at the same time. Right, and. Uh... Would it be fair for me to ask how this compared with orgasm or other uh, other human activities? Um, yeah. I, I well, first of all, it's it's the entire backside, head to toe, and it's constantly it's constantly going. So, is in terms of orgasm, I mean, it would have to be a body gasm, you know, times a thousand. <laughs> right. Okay. So what we're saying is that it's experienced all over your entire electrical or your entire nervous system. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. You would, you, you're trying to describe something that's not local. Right. You know, not localized within the body somewhere. And it's just an ecstatic feeling that's, um, that's encompassing the entire body without you being able to ascribe any center to it. Yes. Very fascinating. And then at some point, however, you said that, well, now you're able to feel that blissful energy washing out of a slit at the base of the spine. So it must have taken a slightly different character then and become more localized, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can very much feel it wash in and wash out like it's coming so, out of that. Yeah. All right, and can you tell me uh, as much as you can describe as a human experience of a second or a heartbeat, you know, does it come rush in and out on a sort of a one-second frequency or wash in for five seconds and wash out for five seconds? How can you describe that as, as, as changing in time? Um, I would say that it washes in and, well, see, it, it's, hmm, it's hard to say it with this experience because I didn't really – concentrate on the time so much but i would say the first time i felt it it washed in for maybe 30 seconds it was you know became me was in me whatever right, so it was, it was filling you okay right. so we had a sense of it it's filling you and that sense that lasted for many seconds right okay and then and then what happened next uh then it washes back out but i go out with it my sense but of you go out with it, so out. that means that you're no longer aware of yourself as a being, you're saying. Well, for a timeless moment, I'm not aware of anything at all. I just sort of that's right. you that describe that, and then that's it. That's right. You describe that as a nothingness. Right. Okay. So how do you process that? How, what do you think was happening to you? Do you have any, any, any way of comparing this to any other human experience you have? Um, no, but I, I, but I would say that what, 
what I think is happening, I, I think it's pretty much what you said that we have, it's when we're talking about a holographic universe, you know, it's systems within systems within systems and, and that we do have, for lack of a better term, a wormhole in us through which we can connect with, well, everything. I mean, I, I think there are states and stages of mind, you know, clearly people have mapped these out through uh, Buddhism, for example, or even psychology. But then there's this stage beyond all stages, which is sort of this thing where you end up in that I am identification mode that is all inclusive of those stages of everything. And I think for whatever reason, I just, I ended up there. Very good. And I have to say, I envy you these experiences because these things don't happen to me. I, I don't know such an experience. Um, and um, so I think that this is then closer to what the Indian mystics call the Samadhi experience. And I agree with you that these have been described throughout the history of our civilization. Um, I presume that shamans experience this. Uh, we know the mystics in India describe these experiences and other people closer in space and time to us in our civilization in America. Others also exp um, ex um, recount such experiences. So I think there's no reason to question whether what you're saying is true or crazy or anything of the kind. It has been known for a long time in our civilization. Well, let me ask so, you this. Uh, if someone like me has this experience, then it, it tells you that, that we can do so much more with our brain body than uh, brains and bodies than, than we allow. Um, do you think that that means that we necessarily have to get there? Like, is that something that you think humans uh, need to evolve into? Like, just in terms of thinking about aliens, if you think aliens are coming here, I mean, how could they possibly land and talk to us openly if we have this potential to be this thing, right? And we're stuck being we're stuck being the the grub running around on the ground and not and not turning into the butterfly and flying around. Why would they talk to the grub on the ground? Yes, very fascinating questions, and I think that um, almost certainly. Um, the aliens are here to study us and to uh, get to know us a little bit, and I think that their relationship to us is a little bit like our relationship to animals. Um, we use uh, um, animals in our earthly existence as pets. Sometimes we use them as laboratory animals. We use them as seeing eye dogs or tools of various kinds. We use them in hunting and in shepherding and so on. And so I I think that our relationship to animals on our planet are rather like um, the relationship between humans and more advanced civilizations that are visiting us. And so you see that we work out so many, or just as we work out so many agendas with our pets and with animals, I think that the aliens are working out a great many agendas with us, and we don't necessarily see a very strong pattern because probably there are so many agendas and so many different aliens. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. When, when you talk to your colleagues about this stuff, or, or do you talk to your colleagues about this stuff, do they, what, what's their reaction? Uh, I don't talk to my colleagues about this stuff. I've broached the subject with one or two of them from time to time, and while I wouldn't say that I was put down, um, it was clear that there was no interest in it. And I want to tell you something, um, um, a little story that I think tells a lot about where our civilization in particular and my colleagues um, are with regard to this subject. Because 
Um, something happened recently up in Rangeley, Maine, and the proprietor of a hotel and uh, guest suites operation there told the following story. It turns out that this hotel is sited on Rangeley Lake, a big, beautiful, romantic lake, and um, it was a corporate retreat of sorts, and there were about 50 people out on the deck enjoying the evening's air and uh, enjoying the corporate retreat, when suddenly a UFO appeared. And this wasn't a kind of a barely little, barely seen little distant point of light. This was the big kahunga, bigger than the full moon and in your face, unmistakable. So what happened was extremely indicative of the attitude of our civilization towards such anomalous things. The group, seeing this phenomena instantly, very quickly broke up into three subgroups, each about an equal third of the people present. And the first subgroup quickly turned its back on the phenomenon, on the UFO, walked into the building, and didn't look out anymore at the UFO. These, in my view, were people who don't want to have responsibility for having to describe it or talk about it and would prefer to go on in their normal existence in which such things don't happen. That was the first group. The second group of people also turned their back on the phenomenon and walked to the farthest point on the deck and started a conversation about among themselves about nothing at all, but kept sneaking little glances back to see if the UFO was still there or what was happening about it, did it look the same, blah, blah, blah. And I interpret, although I wasn't there, I interpret this as the kind of people in our civilization that are curious enough to want to know but don't want to take the responsibility of ever having to explain this to their children or explain this to their colleagues. They would prefer to put themselves in the situation where, well, I didn't really see it and I don't know anything about it. Uh-huh. And then, as you can imagine, the remaining third were out there on the deck cheering and shouting at you. Well, did you see that? Well, didn't the color just change it and moving? You know, can, you can imagine how excited they were. Uh-huh. And it was an extraordinarily animated conversation, and that's people like you and me, people who don't have any problem about the fact that, well, there are things in our universe that we don't know about and that aren't being described very well. And, wow, they're really cool. So that. I give this example as an example where that explains how our civilization is very um, undecided about the whole UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. There are different attitudes very clearly seen in the three group responses when a UFO appeared. Some want nothing to do with it, some kind of want nothing to do with it, but they are curious, and then some would just want to know more and more and more, and that's you, Jeremy, my dear boy. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, do you feel uh, lonely in your uh, career? Um, Yes, I do, but don't forget that I have to take on the following proposition. Don't forget that many of the people who are in astronomy today are there because odd things have happened in their past. But I have to assume that because no one ever talks about such things, 
that these people have learned that the only way to survive in a research career is to never speak about anomalous phenomena and UFOs in particular. Now, we kind of know that in the general American population, approximately 10 to 15 percent of the population has either seen a UFO or a loved one like a wife has seen a UFO and really believe that such things exist. And extrapolating from those numbers, I'd say, well, what if then maybe 30 percent of people who are in astronomy are there because um, astronomers kind of overrepresent our society as a whole. There are people who developed an interest in astronomy because they happen to know from their observation that the sky is more interesting and mysterious than they ever read about in a textbook. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then you have to understand that at my institution, the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, there are 300 Ph.D. scientists. And if a third have seen a UFO, that's 100 people that have seen a UFO. And isn't it astonishing that none is talking about it? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're all keeping this big secret from ourselves. It's, it's strange. Isn't it the strangest thing? Hmm. Jeff, I'm, I'm conversation hogging. Do you? Uh... No, I'm curious, uh, Doctor. How do you when you when you reference the statement ET? How do you define that as, as it applies to to the UFO phenomenon? I mean, do you believe that these are things coming from some other civilization, some other planet out there that that we may or may not know about? Um, very much so. So, if I could say it in my own words. Um, Astronomers today are confronted by the fact that there's an enormous number of habitable planets in the universe. And we know that in the following way. You know that we can discover planets around remote stars by this wobbling method, the fact that if a star has a planet orbiting around it, the star looks like it's wobbling in the sky slightly. And we've developed techniques to measure such wobbles. And so we know that there are over 400 stars now that with modern uh, careful telescopic observations, we see doing this wobble and therefore infer that these 400 stars have a network or family of planets. But really, if you look carefully enough, basically you will find that any star has such a family of planets. And what we really believe today is that basically planet formation is an important part of star formation and probably all stars have a solar system of many planets much like our own. Now, think about our own solar system for the moment from this point of view. Starting at the sun, which is very hot, obviously, well, the innermost planet is Mercury, and it's too hot for water. Uh, There's no water on its surface. Venus is a little bit too hot. It's about uh, 270 degrees Fahrenheit, Uh, so that would be um, near the boiling point, say, of water. But Earth is just right, isn't it? Earth is just right for water to exist, and water is such a wonderful solvent that many of life's constituents can dissolve in it, and so it's easy to imagine life forming in water. Now, moving on beyond Earth, you have Mars, which is a little bit too cold now, but probably had a a thicker atmosphere and probably was warmer in the past. And then Jupiter and the rest are all much too cold, too far from the sun, and so they don't count. They probably have not evolved life as we know it. 
So we think that our solar system is probably very typical and that it has a few planets that are too hot, one that's just right, and a bunch more that are too cold. And it's therefore statistically likely that basically all the stars in the sky have a family of planets with one habitable planet. That's a sweeping statement, isn't it? Because, you know, on a night sky, you can walk out in a dark place and see several thousand stars, perhaps 5,000 stars or so. And so you have to say to yourself, well, there's a, probably a planet there and there and there and there. In other words, there's a lot of habitable planets out there. And coming then from that point of view, you have to ask yourself, so what are the possibilities that we're the only life that emerged in the universe? I mean, get real. Right. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, my my question in the way that I that I kind of couch it is that at least as far as the ufological literature reads and and as far as uh, people like Jacques Vallée have been theorizing about is that this may not be uh, physical flesh and blood, nuts and bolts craft and or aliens coming here, but that this may be something far more bizarre, far more complex than we are uh, capable of, of probably understanding. Um, I, and I was okay. curious if, if you, I mean, that's the way I lean. I don't lean towards this being a necessarily all the time physical phenomenon. I think it can be real when it wants to be, which poses a problem for a lot of the people that I talk to about it. They ask me, well, are they real? I say, well, they're real if they want to be, but they don't have to be. It's an option for them, it seems. Uh, and that's kind of the route that I've always taken. So when I hear ET, I, I look back over you know the past 23 years I've been in ufology, and I don't see any real proof, uh, empirical data that says this is a flesh and blood thing, putting you know boots on the ground, and dealing with people in any sort of forensical way. Um, do you agree or disagree with that? Well, in the first place, uh, going back to the initial part of your statement, I want to say it's really D, all of the above, when you ask the question, is it real or is it uh, more psychological? And I think that probably it is both at different times to different people. And so that's why there's no uh, agreement about uh, the answer to that question. Right. Is that right. possible for you? Does that make sense, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. That... Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me, if I might, then let me expand on that remark a little bit. And, um, you know, I know Jeff Valet, uh, he's Jacques Valet. Um, I've met with him and, um, I, I, I like something about what he says, um, to this extent. Um, if you imagine that there are other entities in the universe that want to visit with us, and want to interact with us, don't forget that what they know is what we know, which is that Hollywood has been directing at us movies about UFO encounters for about 50 years now, maybe even 60 or 70 years. And so there's kind of agreement in our civilization now about this is what a UFO encounter is like. And so it's entirely possible that if entities want to manifest here and interact with us, they're giving us a story that they know we can easily understand about what this means to us or how we can process this information. And so it's entirely possible that there is some component of the extra the extraterrestrial visitors giving us what we want to just calm us down 
to make this all sound plausible to us, even though there may be a more complicated agenda at work here. Now, isn't that compatible with all of the things that you said? Uh, yeah, but I could also say to the same standpoint that uh, it is so complex that the human mind can't perceive of it, and it wouldn't be aliens that would be putting forth the the mask or the or the facade of of an extraterrestrial, you know, uh, uh, sci-fi thematic to us, but rather that it's our own minds putting forth that thematic based on cultural contamination. All right, so so you see how close we are in our thinking here. Oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. I fully agree that there is this cross-culturalization, uh, this cultural cross-fertilization uh, uh, thing going on, and it may be true at the same time that there are real flesh-and-blood entities that manifest in our space-time. I have a suspicion that that is true, but I haven't ever seen one myself, and so I can only take uh, other viewers' accounts and, uh, and basically describe to you what they say to me. Well, well, here's another, here's another big question for you. In the course of of trying to understand uh, quote unquote alien contact of one sort or another, Jeremy and I ran into the the, the works of Terence McKenna, who you know experimented with compounds like DMT and psilocybin and all of these other uh, psychedelic uh, compounds. And in the course of Terence's experiences with DMT, which were many, he conveyed uh, essentially upon ingesting the DMT that he was taken to a place, not a state of mind, a place that seemed every bit more real than reality itself. He went on to describe that it was like a big round room with a vaulted ceiling with indirect lighting, and there were others there. These others were uh, what he described as machine elves uh, that would uh, come up to him and, and, and say, oh, we're so glad you're here. Why did you stay away so long? Uh, and then they'd begin singing to him, and they would sing things into existence. In other words, a three-dimensional verbalization, linguistic object that, that they would then present to him. I mean, all of this is happening at such a ridiculous pace that it's almost beyond his human comprehension to even understand this. But at the same time, he's saying that uh, this is not a state of mind that this is a either his consciousness is leaving and going elsewhere or he is opening different parts of his consciousness to be able to see things that are already all around us uh, very nice jeff so jeff could this be an application of what i was describing a little while ago which is effectively a, a aspect of remote viewing could it be that while his body was fixed mm-hmm. his mind was in telepathic communication with another entity that was actually in that vaulted room and actually taking part in this event. Now, recall from your story, the people said that they were very happy to see your friend's spirit, 
right. at that remote site. And so it makes it a little bit harder to understand how um, your friend could have been um, re-remote viewing but also have his spirit manifest there. That's a kind of a double magic thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I could imagine that that does happen. I could imagine that he telepathically communicated with somebody who was present there and, in fact, in some senses, changed physical form with that person. Mm -hmm. okay. I, you know, I've never done this, and I don't have the experience, and so all I can do is go right. from your description of right. it. I'm sorry, that's the best I can do, but it does not sound to me like anything so very different from what I understand remote viewing to be. So, so when you when you hear a, an account like that from someone, even on a, a psychedelic compound, which immediately I would say a good half of the population is going to say, "Well, of course you saw that. You were on drugs." Yeah. Uh, oh. You know bad. that that of course. Bad. Right. Exactly. Um, would you then say that whatever someone may or may not experience on a very potent compound like that? could possibly be some sort of freestanding reality as opposed to just a hallucination or a product of the mind? See, that's the subtle thing about the working of a quantum universe. You can never really know, can you? In no. other words, <laughs> um, you said that Terence McKenna actually himself was never really clear about just exactly what happened and wasn't able to distinguish reality from imagination, and that's so typical of quantum effects in our universe. Um, it's sort of like so many things happen to people that might be a coincidence, but, you know, I've had too many coincidences this week. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so <laughs> subtle the way the universe works at this level that you're never really quite sure. And it's my view that drugs are very useful to allow people to go to such alternate states and places and experiment with vaster experiences of life itself. And um, I don't think I should... Um, in a public way, say drugs are a good thing because it's kind of no, like of a double-edged sword always. There's good news and there's bad news here. Right. But some people do seem to use drugs the way others use meditation to achieve altered states. And it's my feeling that uh, the most popular of drugs, which is marijuana, seems to actually most effectively enhance the brain's right-side function, this um, this referencing to soul and kind of shut down the left side of the brain, which is the kind of um, the thought-inducing and the body sensor-invading um, part, the part that tells the brain what the body is up to and also the part that allows the body and the brain to do rational thought. That seems to get switched off and the fun side of life, look at the bright lights, wow, look at the pretty flowers, wow, <laughs> right. that seems to get enhanced. And so I think many people um, have experience of liking such substances for those kinds of reasons and who am I to say what's right or wrong? All right, sure, sure. Chair. Well, when you have you uh, studied remote viewing, do you know, like for instance, DMT is what's produced in the pineal gland in the human body? Uh, is this what remote viewers are accessing? I mean, is it the same thing as accessing it through a mushroom or a ayahuasca brew? 
Actually, I don't know that pharmacology of, of this whole subject. I really don't. I'm, I'm not a drug user, actually. And <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. So I, I don't I really understand about these things, and uh, I'm probably not a good person to talk about them. However, it's my impression that the Indian mystic crowd is having the same kinds of experiences without the drugs, although, again, I can't speak authoritatively about that. Okay. Um, getting back to the ET issue, if we talk about dark energy, dark matter, uh, and that the universe is made up of mostly things we can't see, then could, instead of these being aliens from another place, could they not just be something that are around us right now that we uh, simply can't see? Um, absolutely. And um, I think the way the universe works here is worth taking a minute and describing to you. <laughs> Um, you might recall. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> yeah, um, you might recall that um, Ico Eben wrote a book in 1994. It was called Einstein's Greatest Legacy: um, Wormholes, Black Holes, Warps of Space and Time. And um, in the book, he made the observation that if the universe were to contain a field which has the property of negative gravity, in other words, it's a field of repulsive force, not gravity-like attractive force, he said such a universe would then enable wormholes or there would be wormholes in such a universe. Well, by golly, this is a discovery we made 10 years ago with astronomical observations of supernovas. We find that the universe has such a field, and I told you it's what is causing the universe's expansion to start all over in the last one-third of the history of the universe. So um, there's every reason to believe, based on what would be considered good science, um, that the universe has wormholes. And what I mean by wormholes is that there are some kind of pathways lacing the universe, not necessarily, you know, the stereotypical image of a double-ended funnel, but maybe there are waves that pervade the universe that you can ride on, kind of in a surfing-like mode. Mm -hmm. That seems to be more like what the wormholes are like rather than the tube. Now, if such wormholes exist in the universe, then almost certainly other um, living beings, other sentient beings, other conscious uh, entities in the universe could ride these wormholes and come and be around us all the time, much as you, as you suggest. So I would answer your question, yes, almost certainly we are being surrounded by partially manifested or unmanifested spirits all the time. And almost certainly they're reading our minds and playing with our minds and putting little ideas in our heads from time to time. All that must be going on all the time. What a fascinating universe we live in. Well, why do you think that's a one-way street? Uh, well, I don't think it's a one-way street because I, when I said that um, the uh, mind has this eternal connection, this connection to the eternal part, and I hope you understand what I'm talking about here is the soul. Mm -hmm. I think that every mother knows that, yeah, the two kids were raised identically, but they're as different as night and day. That's that part that you bring to life with you. That's your eternal, your eternal connection. That's the part of you that agreed before you were born that, yes, I will go to Earth for an existence at this time in Earth's history because I have to work out lesson plan B. 
So I think that um, we establish such a wormhole connection when we're born, or perhaps even in the womb. I suspect that it actually is growing as we're developing in the womb, and I believe that it's what closes at death. So that when people talk about a near-death experience, about traveling through the tunnel and seeing all the past events of your lives and people and loved ones played before you and being in your experience again, that's the, expand, that's the experience of the wormhole closing up. And all of the information of your life is now encapsulated in this dark energy field that's in this wormhole connection to your soul. Mm -hmm. And so that, I believe, is um, what persists in ghost apparitions, that wormhole evidently never really quite closed. And so the pathway still uh, is foggy but still present in the universe. And so when people see a ghost, it's foggy, not perfectly manifest. It has only some of the properties of a fully manifest living sentient being. So that's probably what ghosts are. And so this soul is a part of us that connects us with the eternal with the eternal side of us in the universe, and um, that's what conscious activity is. And it's our brain's rhythmic and constant reflecting all of our left brain experiences with this soul part of our brain, this soul connection of the right lobe of our brain. That's the way I think it works. Now, when you invoke this word soul, I can already see listeners you know, are going to be questioning this because everything else is science, and now suddenly here's this intangible thing called the soul. Uh, is there yeah. any research into this? Is there anything that you can make, I know it's impossible, but concrete about that term? Ha, very good question, because you see, our civilization has actually talked about this for 9,000 years. <laughs> you think we'd have it right by this point. <laughs> right, and yet we're still asking about it, aren't we? So that tells you how tenuous uh, the nature of this beast is. It shows that it's something that we have known about for 9,000 years and talked about, and yet we've never satisfied ourselves that we've had the last word. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's the first thing that we've known about, and we've known about it all this time, and yet never really put our hand on exactly what do we mean. And so I'm afraid I can't do any better than the summation of our entire civilization has done, except, as I explained it now, as probably a wormhole connection to that eternal part of our being. And that's entirely consistent with what all the religious types have said throughout history, to the best of my knowledge. Mm -hmm. Or do you know of something more? Um, no, that, that, that sounds good. It's just any time I hear someone say that we planned our lives out. For instance, I, I threw a conference in New Jersey, and some of these, uh, a couple of the guest speakers were of that mind, that, that we pre-plan our lives and then we come here and live them. And then they gave the example of 9-11, that the victims of 9-11 had chosen that. So it's okay that they all died on 9-11. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty bold, coarse, awful thing to say in New Jersey especially. Um, and then I think about that and I think, well, that doesn't jive with me. That really doesn't, uh, that, that we would all come, we would choose something, map it out, and then come experience it. Um, 
just doesn't work for me. I don't know. Right. Let me help you then with that. I'm glad you bring this up because um, when you talked about, um, you know, people dying and that was their manifest destiny, then the logical extreme of that is, so if I kill a person, they were predestined to die, so it doesn't matter that I killed them, so why should I face legal consequences? Yeah. I mean, that is kind of a, a logical offshoot from what you said, isn't it, from, yes. from that line of reasoning that um, so everybody who was, uh, who was killed in 9-11 was supposed to die in 9-11, and um, um, there is no free will really in the universe, and so uh, it doesn't matter what I do. I reject that philosophy, and I think that the universe is really more fascinatingly built in such a way that there is a divine purpose and there is free will at the same time. And what actually happens in our universe cannot be entirely predicted, even by futuristic people, because the outcome is always some unknown combination of these factors. So let me get a little more specific about how I believe this works. We know now from these investigations of black holes that black holes are a place where it seems that the inside, that is beyond the horizon or in the part that we can never um, contact, um, that is most probably of the character of an extreme white hole or an extreme um, part of space and time which is extremely wormhole intensive and in fact it seems most likely to me and to others now working this out mathematically that probably all interiors of all black holes are interconnected instantaneously and that that is the realm of the creator and that the creator's purpose for the universe is manifest in the black holes through these leaky surfaces, and that's how the universe works, so that prayer is answered in the universe, and some people have a sense that a divine spirit is pulling levers and making the universe work. At the same time, you're unhappy with a description of the universe where my behavior is of no consequence because everything is foretold anyway, and so I might just as well shoot the place up and have a good old cowboy time because everything is preordained. I have no responsibility here. I'm, I'm just here as a, uh, as a puppet of some something. So the way I process all of this information is to say, the universe was apparently constructed with this fabulous network of black holes, which required very fine tuning in the early creation of the universe. And these black holes are able to manifest the purpose and intent of the creator. At the same time, while that information is being leaked out of the black holes into our space-time continuum and affecting our behavior, at the same time, we have free will through our conscious connection to our eternal being, our soul being. And so we accept responsibility for that eternal being, and we proceed in our lives with what we doing, what we do, having real influence on events. And in this way, the universe was made to have a divine purpose, but also human free will. For that matter, animal free will. Mm -hmm. And isn't that interesting? 
that we have a universe in which you are responsible for your actions, and many people in their near-death experiences have had the experience that what we call the judgment at the end of life, which my Christian religion talks about, you know, the judgment at the end of your life, many people have the experience that at death what actually happens is that your life's experiences pass before you, and now, for the first time in your human existence, you understand what your purpose of your life was in the first place, and you judge yourself. It's not a guy in the sky judging you, but you now understand what that purpose was, and you judge yourself in the presence of all the history of your life, and that constitutes an important part of your near-death experience that you then take to the afterlife and becomes part of what helps you with your next decision of what your next life will be. Hmm. Isn't that a much more interesting way to understand the role of the universe, the existence of a creator, and the existence of free will in the presence of those other two? <laughs> well, yeah. Would, would it be fair to say that then if one were, quote-unquote, God alive, if one were uh, had achieved the enlightened state, if you will, uh, that it then becomes their responsibility um, to help people wake up, to help people judge themselves, as it were, um, because that's really one waking oneself up? Very good, Jeremy, and I agree 100%. And in fact, many people believe that the reason we have so many alien visitors right now is just exactly that. Our civilization is in distress. We need a lot of help. The universe has noticed, and they're here. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it, unless, uh, Jeff, do you have anything? No, I'm good. Well, Dr. Well, Shield, thank I, you. You're very welcome. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I hope for you. And uh, we don't have to, so to speak, end it forever here. You have my email address, and um, uh, I would guess that um, if you process you know, this tape and think about it, you'd like to think of 15 more questions, and if you'd like to write those down and have that be the basis for another session, hey, I'm amenable to it. Well, awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just I just uh, said yeah. awesome to a Harvard astrophysicist. <laughs> awesome. Awesome RS. Right. <laughs> Thank you again, sir. You're very welcome and thanks for making the contact and I wish the both of you the best. Take Thank care. you, sir. This is Colin Andrews and you're listening to Parasopia. Before Jeff and I uh have a little chat over what we just heard, because let's face it, we did an after chat right after this happened, and right. now it's a day later. Uh, we had a little disagreement about what we heard, and we both re-listened to it. Uh, so before we get to that chat, I just want to say that one thing that he mentions uh, in there is samadhi. This is what he says he thinks my you know God epiphany experience uh, reminds him of, and the best online definition I can find says... Samadhi is a state in which the aspirant is one with the object of his meditation, the Supreme Spirit pervading the universe, where there's a feeling of unutterable joy and peace. And I will say that that was part of it, but that wasn't the whole thing. Hmm. The other thing, I guess I need to apologize that I, I think I said that 
we would ask him about the Susan Kornacki information about, a, you know, a new universe, whether that was equations. She wasn't really clear on what that was she had, but uh, I would assume that uh, Dr. Shield has seen whatever information she was given by these beings, and I should have asked him about that, but it just fled my mind. So next time. Um, and then I guess the third thing... I'm not certain, but I think in the beginning we might have um, gotten left-right brain doings confused. Uh, so if you just want to switch those, then you'll have what the left and right brain actually do. In any event, uh, <laughs> <laughs> those are my apologies, disclaimers. Um, Jeff? <laughs> what's, oh, thanks. What, what's, your, oh. What's, your, what's your contention? What's your beef? What's your bone with, with what you heard with uh, Dr. Shield? Well, I mean, the question is, can I even relate this without laughing or having you laugh at me? <laughs> I've, I've already laughed at it until tears. We, so we, we, yeah, we got on the phone last night. We're like, what did we just do? I mean, I have to say that, that when Jeremy told me that we had an astrophysicist from Harvard coming on the show, that we could ask anything we wanted to, I was, I was pretty excited because that's kind of the reason that we've been chasing people like uh, Mishu Kaku, uh, to come on, but I mean, you're talking about a big personality there that is valuable time that I'm sure he doesn't want to waste on a podcast. Uh, but I thought, hey, next best thing, this will be this will be pretty great. What I kind of took away from a lot of this was that the very beginning of the conversation, I found that very intriguing with the black hole studies and the the notion of seeing two different points in time based on how light is moving around a galaxy and all. I mean, all of that was very interesting. I thought that when I would ask a question about a certain aspect of a paranormal incident or a paranormal field of study, that we would get some sort of, I don't know, amalgamation of theoretical physics, maybe quantum physics, mechanics thrown in there, uh, to kind of say, this is how it could happen, or this is how this could formulate into some sort of thing, which I think, Jeremy, I mean, you chime in here if you think I'm right or wrong. He did sort of get into that a little bit, but not as much as what we or I would have hoped that he that he would have gotten to. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think he did. I, 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 uh, you know, I'm going to take I'm going to be the opposing view on this. So, OK, <laughs> well, my my view is, is that um uh, and the analogy that I gave uh, Jeremy last night says, you know, it's a question of saying, uh, well, Dr. Shields, what do you think about vampires? And he'd say, well, that's very interesting. You should ask that, Jeremy. Now, let's, uh, let's, let's just say, okay, what about a werewolf? A werewolf, they have fangs. And, you know, so I'm thinking it's probably <laughs> somewhere in the same vicinity. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it was kind of like, for me at least, this was one of those things where one unquantifiable question uh, or direction that we wanted to kind of get into a scientific answer was met kind of with another non-quantifiable explanation. And uh, and that didn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, the, the notion of uh, remote viewing in comparison or in tandem with whatever the hell it was I was mentioning at the time, if it was ghost or whether it was... I, I mean, certain things, like like the quantum hologram, in relation to ghosts, that was very interesting. I, I, I guess we should have seized upon that more, but uh, and that's probably my fault because I should have chimed in. I, I think being the two of, two of us who seems to be more interested in ghosts these days than anything else, but I don't know. 
it was kind of like one thing was answered by remote viewing, one thing was answered. It didn't do anything for me in that sense. Now, Jeremy and I have talked today, and he's kind of explained a little bit further about what he thinks. And I, I do see his point. I'm not in disagreement with what he's saying that he felt the show went to. But I think, by and large, a lot of it was an unquantifiable <laughs> subject put forth saying, what do you think? And the answer was werewolves <laughs> or or some other you know, uh, thing that, that really isn't based in, in a science per se. So, I mean, for me, that was kind of it. And then when the conversation kind of went to the whole notion of, you know, these backroom deals before you're born and, um, you, you know, and, and coming here and you're here to learn this lesson and all that, I, you know, I can't spoon feed myself that. I That's not my take on this. I'm looking for more of the mechanics of, what's going on with this. And I think he gave us a chunk of that. But my feeling was, is that a lot of it was paranormal questions answered with paranormal questions, which don't seem to get me anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of like where I'm at with it. So what was your. Well, my take take is, uh, and I wrote it down here. So it would be sort of precise, which is, um, well, the first half might not be precise. I didn't know we could write notes. That's not fair. Really? (laughs) Well, I, I just I, – I keyed in on the word <clears> – <throat> excuse me. At some point he said uh, what, what he was saying was tenuous, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and it, it, it seems like what – your problem isn't with him saying, for instance, uh, we all come here as some predetermined path that we set for ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Your problem, I think, is that he doesn't add the caveat or not. <laughs> He'll say – we have 9,000 years of testimony on the soul, and yet we can't d- decide what the soul means without the caveat, of course, there might not be a soul. It might have been 9,000 years of being wrong. Right. I mean, he's taking testimony from remote viewing, from alien abductions, from whatever, from any of these things, yeah. and he's just extrapolating that, okay, if these are real, this is how they would be real. Uh-huh. And I think when, when you go on a paranormal show, especially one hosted by two experiencers, there's probably it's it's probably safe to say there's an expectation that you're all on the same page that all of this stuff could be real and that it's just shorthand at that point to say uh yeah well this ghost stuff or this Terence McKenna stuff kind of sounds like remote viewing in a certain sense and so i mean you're you're asking him basically okay so what what's the the organ right that that sort of uh, is this quote unquote wormhole in people you know he talks about a soul what's a soul What's the wormhole that that uh, goes between the local body and the non-local information field? You know, what, what if is, there is such a if thing? If there is right. such a thing, what what is that? And instead of going there, he just assumes that we figure we we know from all of the examples around us that we all probably believe in that it exists. So let's just talk about how those things make sense, whether or not we've discovered the actual organ. I and, I, and I think that, that you would have not had a problem if he had known about DMT or even auras or something. You know, if there was something about the human body, even this this thing that opens up in my back, you know, if, if he were to just have said, oh, yeah, that's how we tune into them. You know, it's DMT in the pineal gland. It's that slit in the back that you talked about. That's That's the modus operandi there. Then I think that would be concrete enough. But here's what I wrote down, and, and let's see if you agree with this. <clears throat> okay. 
essentially he's processing the scientific information into a belief system and giving us answers from that. And it's unsatisfying because you're not used to a scientist giving answers from the personal beliefs about his discoveries. You want him to give you the cold facts to inform or render your own beliefs. If you happen to arrive at the same conclusions, great, but you need to arrive there on your own. And huh. I think that's like the crux of it. It's like he's, he's already, for some reason, he has decided that, uh, for instance, the, um, you're, you're born into this life with a predetermined whatever. Uh, he has decided that that's true. And, and that's disconcerting because why did he pick one over another? And I, and well, I yeah, that's think a that, good point. Yeah. I don't think that he differentiated between what his personal belief is and just possibilities that are out there that he can see how they make sense in the world uh, right. using the black hole information that he's discovered. Right. Um, and so I think you want a little, little more concrete there in, in that way, or a little more, a little more distant, a little more objective <laughs> than that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I was just looking, I mean, believe me, I don't want, I don't want, for that matter, any scientist to tell me what what to believe, what not to believe, all of this. I, I'm just looking for different threads that could be pulled upon to see if anything comes apart. And, and, and for instance, you know, your base of the spine slit opening up. If he'd have said something like, well, we have the, the chakra in that spot, I might have winced a bit. But if he'd have followed that up with... However, there, that's where uh, the, the base of the spine is where the neurons tend to coagulate together. That's where there's a lot of neuronic uh, impulses, and these things coincide with the, the, the chakra points and these kinds of things. I mean, that, that even would have been a little bit like, okay, I'm seeing you know, that there's, there's something there. It doesn't have to be so well-defined. But if you had been uh, born in India, hmm? um, you would be fine with him saying chakras. You wouldn't need to hear neurons. Right, but I wasn't born in India. Well, but that's the point. The point is, like, at what point? <laughs> at what point is it just a cultural prejudice t- toward what you're hearing? I mean, when he said samadhi is the closest. Well, because thing when I hear of, that's unsatisfying right. because it's like samadhi. That's not scientifically proven, but for <laughs> thousands of years, sure, people have talked about. People have that. been right. saying this is exactly what this is. So sure. why would you discount well, that simply because well, of science, which you. At the same time, and I, and I, at the same time, not saying you personally, but we generally sort of shy away from and go, they don't know everything. They don't, they're not, they haven't discovered everything. Right. And they can't discover everything. So why do we then, I, it seems like a, a catch-22. It's like you can't really win. Well, that's true. That's true. I think, um, I think being a child of the 80s, the first time I ever heard chakras was out on a limb with Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> I wouldn't believe I'm just in chakras telling you the either. truth. I have look. I have zero belief in chakras. I have zero belief in any of this stuff. I just mm-hmm. have experienced some things that have changed my mind. So it's not a belief. It exists. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I don't know what it is. I can't tell you because I don't. I refuse to study any of this stuff that's going on in me because I don't want to like prejudice it. Uh, but, Absolutely. But it's um, clearly these energy centers, whatever their function. When you see a light in your chest, like ET, then you. <laughs> when you see a light in your chest. Right, you, you, you know there's something going on there, and and whatever that I mean, we, we've talked about this when we talk about occult definitions back when we had uh, Mitch uh, on the show, and we talked about um, I think on air and off air about how ritual terminology and practice and magical practices and all this stuff may represent something much deeper that we don't even really understand, and we're just attaching these terminologies to it, which are <laughs> all these terms to it. 
just like we attach the term chakra to something, which tends to have, for some people, a lot of New Age baggage along with it. But in fact, this can be experienced. You have experienced something that I wouldn't know what else to call it but that. Uh, So there is definitely something there to it. Uh, I think that when I have an astrophysicist on the show, I'm uh, I'm expecting, uh, and, I, and maybe it probably was part of my own expectations, but you know, I'm expecting to hear, well, something like that could be explained by this. And while it might not explain it exactly, I get a feeling of a flavor here of something that we know of in quantum mechanics or something that we know in astrophysics or what have you. I did not expect the standpoint of everything is on the table because I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think everything's on the table. I mean, that's why I kind of press them about the issue of when you say extraterrestrial, are you talking about nuts and bolts, flesh and blood beings? And he said, well, yes, very much. And then when I said, well, lay into the valetisms a little bit and, and give it sort of that angle, he wasn't opposed to that either. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So how do we study something that is looked at by a physicist in a conversation like that as like everything's on the table? I, I mean, I have to, in a discussion, somehow something has to be narrowed down a little bit, a little bit at least. Uh, I mean, give me something here. Uh, I, I mean, I think what I walked away from it was that uh, an incredibly intelligent man, uh, probably a brilliant physicist or wouldn't be where he is, uh, but at the same time, it's... I don't want to say it's disconcerting, but it's, I don't know, you get kind of a strange feeling when you think about someone of his intelligence who seems to subscribe to some of the things that he does. And you just think to yourself, these people, uh, scientists and other scientists like him, uh, are not predisposed to saying this is all bullshit. In fact, some of them are a little too open, you know, and, and I I don't know. I would feel maybe he's a little too open to all sorts of different things. Well, how would you take how would you take things off the table when all of it's unknown? I mean, the point the point I think <sighs> from his point of view wouldn't be to add or take away. It would be to say I've got Eureka. I've got this unified theory that makes sense of everything, whether that parts of that everything are complete crap or not, mm-hmm. is sort of irrelevant. And so, and, I, and the example I gave you in the email would be. Uh, you know, if you were to say that that the alien abduction testimony is reflects a reality, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter if he were to cite a fraudulent case like Billy Meyer, and then we'd say, well, sir, that's actually a fraudulent case. Well, okay, never mind. Then let me try this example and, and eventually find the one that fits because uh-huh. the thing uh-huh. is real. Whether the individual particulars are real or not, the the thread of alien abductions is real. And I think that's sort of what he did with comparing remote viewing to perhaps DMT to perhaps ghosts or, you know, all of that. It's like the mechanism is the thing that's real, whether the particulars are or not, who knows. But they could be. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but I mean... And he didn't say I don't know. all that, you know. No, of course not. But I, I mean, think it's implied, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I... I mean, certainly, I don't know a whole lot about remote viewing. I'll be the first one to admit that. But what I do know about it is that when the military did use it, uh, from what I've read across the net over the years, is that it wasn't particularly successful, uh, except in some rare instances where they did get interesting things. But it wasn't interesting enough nor concrete enough to continue it. Uh, It's continued on 
since then in other venues, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are corporate remote viewers and stuff like that, that, that uh, can help people or, or not. But, uh, I mean, my, myself, uh, you know, I've tried stuff just along with my wife, just a simple experiment. I got something that was akin to what she was picturing in her head, uh, a certain place that she had, you know, just, just concentrated on. And there it was. And, and I, I didn't pick the exact spot, but I picked all of the textures and colors of this place. So is there something to it? Shh, shh, I can see where there could be something to it. So if you uh, were to say, Can okay. I base an entire framework upon that to then build up to scientific explanation of the reverse? No, I can't do that. I don't because think that's I what can't, he's doing. I no. think he's got this scientific explanation. He's got this template laid out, right? <laughs> this is how everything could work. And then he's picking and choosing within that template what most sounds like what we're talking about. I see. You know? And so it's like, well, Terrence McKenna, he saw these DMT elves, and he <laughs> felt like he was there. Was that a standalone world, or, or what do you think that was? Well, it was probably a standalone world. Probably what happened was, if we look to the remote viewing literature, which most looks like what we're talking about, I see. Uh, he remote viewed that place with beings who know how to do that already, and we're expecting him. And and what and it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you want. Well, it sounds like two things. One, which is you want magical answers to the unknown from science that we know don't exist. No, I don't want that. Uh, but then the other thing, of course, is the fact that okay, out of that giant template of possibilities, for some reason, he has built up a belief system, or the other, the you know, perhaps is the reverse. Perhaps he had a belief. He made these discoveries, and that reconfirmed his own beliefs. And he's like, aha, this proves out exactly what I've believed all my life. You know, It could very mm. well be that. You don't know. And, and that's, I mean, to me, that is an interesting meta point about any of this. And we've seen this with other guests on the show who are, uh, you know, giant in their fields of expertise, who have secret um, beliefs about what's going on. Mm. And uh, those beliefs, if you ever heard them, you'd be like, what? You're not oh, the yeah. rational person I thought you were, but... So there is this compartmentalization in consciousness of you can be really well. Here we go, Susan Kornacki. You've got emotional intelligence and and IQ. I mean, right there is is a breakdown of intelligences. But you have mm-hmm. this in your brain, this this critical thinking in one area and not in another. And I don't even want to use this example for the simple fact that of who he is in connection with Doctor Shield. But I think it's a such a drastic example. You can see it, which is John Lear. Uh, who is, I guess, by all accounts, a brilliant pilot, oh, yeah. really smart when it comes to aeronautics, oh, yeah. but completely batshit crazy when it comes to ufology. How is that <laughs> possible in the same brain? It just is, you know? And I'm not saying she, Dr. Shield is batshit crazy. I'm not saying that at all. No, 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 no. So I'm just using that as the example of how you can have these two seemingly antithetical strains of, of thought going on uh, in the same brain. I guess we agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we disagreeing about? I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing that I'm, it was not satisfactory. I mean, that's a personal opinion. I would disagree that there's a right or a wrong answer in this. I would say that there is. Oh no, no, no! Two, I, I mean, two ways I don't... of looking at something, and you expected him to be the scientist who looks at things one way, and he ended up being the scientist who looks at things the other way. <laughs> I didn't know it was that I didn't expect him to go as far out on the limb as that. Uh-huh. I expected to hear, and, and this was my own expectations, would have been something like, well, here's here's a thread that I can give you. I don't know where it'll lead because we don't know this yet, but what you're talking about kind of sounds reminiscent of what happens in this situation. 
And do we know everything that it, that that comes out of the say the observer phenomena in 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 the, the quantum area? Do we know all of that? What that no, but it kind of I could kind of see this leading off into that kind of direction. Whereas what I I felt like I got was a paranormal uh, question or or you know a, a request for some kind of thread of direction in that, and what I got was another paranormal thread. That didn't seem to fit into, I mean, when you really listen to the explanation of, well, the remote viewing we know does this and we, we know does that. And I think it was at the very beginning of the interview where he said, telepathy, we know this is real. Well, if we know that's real, then somebody ought to be pounding down fucking James Randi's door. <laughs> you know, at this point, I mean, I don't know that that's real. But again, I, I, I think mean, that that's shorthand for you and I know that it's real. Because here we are in this paranormal show, and you're yeah, both experiencers. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It, I mean, it may have been miscommunication on that end. I don't know. Maybe but you do know it's real. <laughs> so what are you talking about? I, I, don't, I don't know that it's real all the time. I think, I think it's got its times. I think it doesn't. I think it's like every other bit of the paranormal. You're not going to nail it down. But, you know? No. See, it is. But it, what, what does that mean? It's telepathy. It's, it's a function of something. I mean. A function it either happens or it doesn't happen, right? And it's been tested, and they've found it in rare instances, you know. But do we know in scientific fact what makes it work? How does it work? Why does it work? All the things that science has to know has it proved it out? No, no, no of course not. But I don't think he would say that. I don't know. I mean, I guess. Well, I, guess I don't think he would either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I don't know. Like I said, I think it was just it was a little. Well, but the, see, broad. this is where we get into like I, you know, once again, I don't I don't understand. Like even he said at, at a, a few times. Well, are we in agreement that we're in the ballpark of talking about the same thing? We're we're both sort of on the same page, even if we're at different places. And you're like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's the same thing. It's like, well, okay, we haven't proven it out objectively, logically, but subjectively, you do know telepathy is real. You've experienced this. Mm-hmm. So cut the shit. I, I think like that's sort of cut the shit. You know it's real, so it doesn't matter what this fucking objective scientific f- thing has has been proven or not. So and you don't saying, think that you don't think that it's important to the, the rest of the world that they know that this is an, an objective reality that this this kind of thing exists. Um, I think that if I mean that's what you're doing with your whole enlightenment thing is you're you I, say you know shouldn't I be imparting this to other people and that the point of what you're well, trying to do is figure that out. I think that the the point is that there is no objective, like you said, there is no objective scientific answer for it. However, we do know it exists subjectively because we've experienced it, and so it's disingenuous to expect a physicist to give you an objective answer uh, that proves something that when that doesn't exist. And it's also disingenuous to pretend that it doesn't exist simply because it hasn't been objectively proven since you have experienced it. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> well, in other words, you're, you're asking him, Dr. Shield, give me, give me an example of how telepathy, you know, you're saying that it exists. So give me the scientific data that it, that it does. What's, where's the proof? Mm-hmm. And the answer there would be, well, there is no proof. Another answer there would be, well, you've experienced it, so what proof do you need? Mm-hmm. And what you wanted to hear from him wasn't you experienced it, what proof do you need? You wanted to hear the objective proof that it exists. But there is no objective proof that it exists, so you're asking a false question. Because <sighs> hmm. 
Because like you said, if it were there, James Rickey I, I think I'm asking a fair question that anyone in the public would ask. I don't think it's disingenuous to ask for, you know, when someone says that this is a reality. Well, in what sense? In what capacity? To what frequency? You know, um, to what end? I mean, do we know that this kind of thing exists? I mean, we've heard this on God knows how many paranormal TV shows about the mother who lives 50 miles away from her daughter and something happens to her daughter and she knows it. You know, I mean, that's telepathy. Well, let me ask and you that's then. Some maybe, form I'm asked, of maybe I'm not getting it then. If, if this were Michio Kaku and you said, can you prove, you know, what's, what's telepathy? Can you prove mm-hmm. that? What, what mm-hmm. kind of answer would you expect from him? Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't have any clue what the answer would be to that. I mean, I you know, I mean, would he say something about uh, you know the energy that we're all made of and us all being connected and the things that you talk about in that way? I mean, is that how communication is done? Uh, you know, a, across vast distances or from one head to another, is is energy making a leap into someone else's consciousness and that sort of thing? I mean, that I could go. Okay, I can kind of picture that. I can kind of, I can kind of kind of see my way around that. But I can't just arbitrarily say this absolutely exists. Um, you know, have I experienced something like that? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but for the rest of the world, which I feel is important for this to get out, and I'm not saying this in a disclosure kind of way. <laughs> I'm saying this in the sense that we're trying to make people aware of some greater things going on than what we've always been led to believe about all of this. And then to to say it doesn't matter because it's been experienced. Well, it does matter. We have to have some kind of way to put everybody on the same boat so that we all know this thing goes, you know, as as a, an objective reality that we all can can look at and examine and test and all of, all that would be great. Is it going to operate like that? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't even know if the right questions are being asked in the way of research in that. You know, I mean, are they even approaching it from a way that can be quantifiably validated? I mean, I don't know that. But I think it's important for what we're doing in the sense that people get something that they can um, not just say, well, I believe this or I believe that. I don't, you know, people don't want to believe. They want to know or not know. And this is where we step into this gray area that we're always going to be in with this stuff. At least I feel we're always going to be in. I I think it's just like your frustration with relating your experiences and how we all can do this. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard it come out of your mouth that I'm this special guy who did this special thing and I'm now this special person because of it. Mm. I think you say and what you become so frustrated personally with is that you try to say, you just don't see it. It's right in front of you. And all you need to, to do is grab a hold of it. And, but the, the part that's missing is how do we grab a hold of it? See, that, that's, that's where your frustration comes in in trying to explain that verbally about things that are so hard to get your, your hands on. I mean, you can't get your hands on them. And I've experienced only the tiniest bit of that being everything and and that that letting go and you know what you've basically laid out for me in 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 certain ways that I've kind of got my head around your idea. I think it's important for everyone to know that. Just like you think it's important for everybody to know right. the experience that you can that you can experience just like you had. And I think when we start talking about paranormal issues and somebody just comes off and says, "We well, all know ghosts are real." 
not everybody knows that. How do we make everybody aware of the greater reality of it? How can we say, here's what we have, effectually present it so that people go, oh, I see where this is coming from. And then along with what Dr. Shield says about, just take for instance, where he's examining the, 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 the pulsar coming through a galaxy and it's bending, splitting the, 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 the light in two ways, and this is how this could work. See, I thought that part of this discussion was really valuable, but I can't put value to me on something that is – I'm asking something about a belief system that I have that I find questionable and I want to know more about it, and then it gets answered with something else that I – again, is just another thread that seems all tangled up too, you know. I mean, does that explain it at all? Yeah, I mean, no, I completely get what you're saying. I, I just wonder if this would have been solved by saying that before the interview, because we, you wouldn't expect a physicist, like you said, an astrophysicist, no. to, to come at it no. this way, so you wouldn't have that conversation. But no, he was so open. I was maybe like, this time we would, but, but <laughs> I really, I mean, I guess I see the interview this way that he laid it out with the um, with the black hole stuff and with the quantum holograph and saying that, you know, wormholes uh, aren't a funnel, they're a wave, and consciousness yeah. rides out, the wave rides out into basically non-locality, and, and that's sort of the basis of everything else. So it's like he lays out this scientific explanation of what we now know the universe does, and then he says, all right, so what paranormal questions do you have? What do you want to talk about? Uh-huh. You want to talk about ghosts? You want to talk about whatever? What do you want to try to fit into this? And then we say, all right, let's uh, let's go with ghosts. How do you fit ghosts in there? Right. And then you expect the ghost thing to to simply be um, another answer with physics, and partly it is an answer with physics, but then right. like you say, he throws in werewolf, but then he says <laughs> you know, and further you know, it's almost right. like a holistic approach. It's like and furthermore, we can we can see it not just with real science but with junk science no we can <laughs> we cannot just see it with 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 this physics model but we can see it but we can see it with <laughs> which is where we were last night but we could also see it with uh remote viewer testimony with uh-huh. whatever whatever i mean i don't i don't see i don't see how that's really any different than us saying um we've got all these things to play with the trickster DMT, other dimensions, uh, alien abduction. We've got all these things, ghosts. Um, it just seems that some of them you particularly don't like. And so when you hear them, you go, I don't want to believe that. Well, it's cultural poisoning for me more than anything. I mean, like I said, you know, like chakras. I mean, I, we could probably have a guest on to talk about chakras, you know, or, or something like that, or energy points or whatever that kind of thing. I would win. You know, I, I, would, I would be out of my mind. I'd be like, no, I don't want to. No. Really? <laughs> yeah, because I. But you've experienced it. Why wouldn't you? Because I, I, it doesn't. Be, it doesn't matter. I unless I knew who they were. Unless I knew that they had experienced it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like you said, contamination. I mean, what that's what the new age is to me is oh, place, contamination yeah. of uh, authentic wisdom traditions. <laughs> right. Uh, it's like wisdom traditions for dummies, so you can just right. go, yeah, and it too. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and even, like, I'll say this, even for his, you know, the belief system about that we all map out our lives and all of that stuff. I mean, I can even argue that away with my giant experience by saying that on one level, 
once again, something that you can observe, anything that you can observe becomes the surface level, becomes the apparent thing, and there's always something underneath that. There's always the underlying thing of that, and the underlying thing of everything is that everything is a manifestation of formless intelligence, and so, um, so yes, you might experience it that way, but that's not the end game. That's right. still more delusion for you to remain here doing your little uh, right. journey, you know. And, and if and I guess what oh. I'm saying that's completely antithetical to at least everyone on our message board is that there is no journey. There is no journey that you need to take, and that's why I don't believe in uh, you come here, you map out your life, you you take it. No, no, no. I mean, you can probably experience it that way. That's a possibility. <laughs> okay. Uh, but. Again, it's 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 further delusion because it's not that first person identity experience. I guess what I'm saying is mm. you have to gravitate away from the third person object, you know, objectifying something, worshiping it. Mm. Then there's the second person relating to it and and you know, being a part of it, which would be the journey part. Mm. Uh and then there's the first person identity where you go, "Oh, I get it." Everything, you know, it's it, it and I think until you hit that, you don't see that the journey's not the thing. Um, and if you do think the journey is the thing, then you end up creating it. It becomes that we all create our own realities. Well, duh. I mean, <laughs> then right. that's what you create. And that's how even, you know, this truth that sort of bubbles underneath everything will present itself to you much in the same way that these so-called aliens or this force of evolution or whatever this is uh, sort of co-creates, spins its own reality somehow with you, with your expectations, with your fears uh, or your hopes or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Um, I think it's that same mechanism. And so you're not, you're not seeing the man behind the curtain still. I probably never will. (laughs) And so then you, then you want to say, well, geez, why is it that some podcaster in a, his pajamas (laughs) knows this, but not an astrophysicist? Why does the astrophysicist attach himself to that belief? Uh, and I think to me, that's the confounding thing. Like why believe one thing over another? Especially if you're someone who has mapped out the tapestry for all possibilities. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised at that. That was what kind of took me aback a little bit. Um, I mean, I still think he had valuable things to say um, when he was talking about his work and some of his discoveries in that. I just, I guess, for me, it didn't translate that well because I got caught up in terminology. And I, and again, and I'll point this out again. This is why I think this shit works as well as it does. Between you and I is because I've spent 23 years investigating and trying to document facts and data and all this sort of stuff. And I'm sort of gravitating away from that little by little because I'm learning that I don't know how valuable it actually is, you know, to have have been doing this. And I think that you approach it from kind of the the other direction. You know, I feel like, you know, we've come at it from both ends and – you see things laying out one way, and I think, again, I think you're a lot more analytical about this than I am because you've had this experience that I have not had where you tend to see the bigger overarching picture of certain conversations that I don't see. You know, when I'm looking for data, evidence, um, theories, uh, even ones that aren't even fully developed yet, but even if there are theories that science is thinking about, I could say, well, I find that intriguing. I find that somewhat interesting. Um, I mean, the DMT study certainly is by no means endgamed. That's not over. They don't know what all of that is. They don't know what the pineal is actually doing. The seat of the soul. I mean, uh, uh, but I think the thread that it's presented 
in the way of Dr. Strassman's work and the, the McKenna brothers both. I, I think what they presented is damn compelling stuff. Uh, and I think we should know more. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, uh, Dr. Shields' work, you know, when it comes to um, looking at how you're actually seeing through time uh, when you're looking at lights from distant galaxies, stars, pulsars, what have you, I think that's pretty damn interesting too. But it's not an end game. It's not. And I think what I was looking for is just, you know, give me a, excuse me, give me a thread of something. <laughs> give me a little thread of something that could maybe. Uh, we could probably theorize into or maybe draw some parallels to. And, you know, instead I got werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> On another note with the interview, I will say that one thing that we talked about, we, we weren't sure until, or at least I wasn't until I re-listened to it, was whether or not his example of a bunch of uh, scientists being in a hotel, oh, yeah. seeing this UFO and then splitting off into three different groups, if that was metaphorical or a real experience. And in re-listening to it, no, that was a real, that was something real. He huh. said, I wasn't there for that. He names the hotel. He says, oh. this was colleagues of his. Uh, that huh. coupled with the fact that, you know, he's saying astronomers, and I assume he knows a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are in this because they've had experiences that they yeah. don't talk about. Just boggles the mind, doesn't it? I mean, well, it's is... it's the underlying current, isn't it? I mean... We talked to uh, Dr. Matloff, who said much the same thing about NASA engineers and uh, and all those guys. You know that, that they've had uh, experiences that they won't talk about, and they so listen maybe to. They all have these, yeah, sorts of beliefs that we don't know about. Maybe they all think the same similar things. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that again. Multi-level experience, multi-level in our culture. It's ingrained in our culture that way, and it's it's just a shame that. Um, that that they won't come out and talk about these things for fear of reprisal, of, you know, work and their ethics and all of that, and not to mention the disputes and sanity. Um, well, I think that's it. I think it's that science. The thrust of science has been to dismantle the the, the junk parts of religion mm-hmm. and magical thinking and the stuff that doesn't work and that has been oppressive. And I think to step forward and say something that sounds reminiscent to to magical thinking at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be to destroy themselves as the new religion that they've evolved right. into. And right, they- right. And for me, I mean, again, just to go back to our show, that's the reason that I'm looking for something like that is, is you know, again, that the, the, the general public needs to have a little more than, you know, what a paranormal show believes. I want to give something more than that. Whether or not we can or we do, I don't know, but that's what I'd like to see happen. And that way, I mean, we, you, you, you said to me yesterday, somebody on your message board has been inspired to talk about what's happened to them just by listening to what we've had to say on our own, mm-hmm. which is fucking mind-blowing to me that anybody would listen to these two idiots. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, I, I, I mean, I was there at one point and somebody said something and I thought, you know what, I could do that i could say that and not sound like an idiot and as long as i present it in uh the most straightforward honest way i can not leave out any little detail then i nobody can think bad of me for wanting to talk about that i would like to see these nasa scientists these astrophysicists these medical practitioners come forward and say i've had this experience this does represent something to me that was a real experience 
we need to learn more about this because ultimately I think that, you know, and not to, not to, not to make it sound too grand, but I think that the notion of the world finding out that there's far more about all of this than we have been told about, and that includes religions of every sort, could conceivably change the world, could conceivably change the way we look at the world and look at each other. And rather than pointing knives and guns at everybody that we see that doesn't look like us or doesn't believe the same things we do, I think something that touches all of us in this world is this other. And to acknowledge that and to be able to give people some some shred of a thread to some quantifiable part of it would be great. <laughs> well, know? then I think that we, we have to adopt this rule. This is, this is how we'll fix it. In the future, when we have on the scientists, uh, and in fact, we'll have Dr. Shield on. He said he'd come back on. Let's get our, yeah. our 15 questions together. Absolutely. And implement the rule, starting with him, which is don't, don't answer vampire with werewolf. Don't assume that we're all on the same page that all of this is possible. We don't want to hear that. We want to know what in objective science or in science, I don't know how objective it is, but what in science right. can possibly explain these things or, or come doesn't have to be concrete, can be completely theoretical. Yeah. You know, we're, that would be good. New possibilities that we can look at instead of, you know, parallel possibilities that we may or may not believe in. Exactly. That's <laughs> perfectly put. Yeah. That's it. Perfectly put. Uh, so anyway, that, that now resolved. I do before we go, and I know that we're running short on time now. Um, we want to thank everybody who uh, donated to the podcast the past couple of weeks. Yes. You have uh, effectually saved the show, and we now have a decent enough bankroll. Number one, we're, we are going to make the move to the new server that's going to be hosting our podcast uh, instead of Podbean. Good Lord. We're also going to be opening a website that's going to house and broadcast that podcast. So all of those things will go to help pay for all of that uh, because this show is getting, in my opinion, is getting too big for Podbean to handle because every time I go to upload something, I have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it's that. I don't know if they can't handle it, but uh, you know, this show has grown so much, so much faster than either of us, I think, yeah. thought it would. And uh, and that's that's really gratifying. But uh, you guys effectually picked up the tab for for uh, and helped us uh, pay for this stuff. So we're gonna make sure that you get more of this and uh, and more online content as well, which we're gonna be talking to you guys about in the future. Stuff like uh, listener blogs that that you can have and and uh, listener submitted articles about certain shows and certain topics, which we're gonna start being able to have a more cohesive website that we can put all those things together on and make it like a Paratopia community out of, which I think will be really neat. Sounds good. Excellent. So thank you, everybody, very much. Thank you and good night.